Hermie. Hermie Rorschach. What is it, Ma? Get in here and clean up this mess. You spilled ink all over everything. Ma, it's not a spill. It's a it's a carefully designed ink blot intended to get around psychological defenses and seek the truth of our secret selves. I- I'm going to be famous, Ma. It's going to be called the Hermie blot. Stupid kid. Hernie blot sounds like a sexually transmitted disease. You call it the Rorschach test. Your father, may he rest in peace. He could paint happy trees and landscapes. Summer, fall, whatever you wanted. The joy of painting, he called it. Somebody's going to steal that name someday. But Ma, my ink blots can unlock the human condition. What? This thing? A rabbit dragging a human corpse up a hill? Um... Is that what you see? That's what it is. And this one's a cat juggling severed heads. And this one is a bear who's been shot and is bleeding out while he tries to call his wife to say goodbye. But she's over here having sex with a mailman who's a wolverine. Ma, you're psychotic. True. My friend Estelle says I'm like a mind reader. No, Ma, you're like a stone-cold killer, like, like a human furnace full of blood. Me? You sit here all day making pictures of rabbits dragging corpses, and I'm the one who needs help? Enough. You clean this up. I have to take sharp pieces out of an alarm clock and use them to kill a drifter. I feel like this could be a musical. Am I wrong, Rorschach the musical? Just sit with that idea and tell me what you think of it. And now he keeps seeing a map of the United States. Every time he looks at a map of the United States, Colin McEnroe. I think it could be a musical. I really need this blot. I've got to have this blot. It's going to tell me who's crazy and who's not. See, I've got you up. It's already, it's practically started at this point. All right. So uh, we have a lot of things to say today beyond the things that we've just said about Rorschach blots, Rorschach tests. This is something that we use conversationally all the time, but we don't really necessarily, it turns out, have much of a grasp of what this is, where it came from, how it works, how well it works, or how well it doesn't work. It, it is pretty much all over the place. I mean, if you were transfixed by the video for Crazy, the Gnarls Barkley song, you saw animated Rorschach blots, and that's because CeeLo Green, the singer on that song, had been given a Rorschach test when he was a troubled teen. Uh, if you follow things like Watchmen, uh, the comic book by Alan Moore, you know there's a character named Rorschach. And then more than that, and we'll be talking about this a little bit later in the show, everybody, including pointy-headed pundits like me, are constantly using the term, you know, oh, Hillary Clinton's a Rorschach blot for, you know, what you actually think about America or something like that, right? And Hillary Clinton herself has claimed that she is a Rorschach blot. But it's not just Hillary Clinton. It's just like everything's a Rorschach blot. But what is a really, what really is a Rorschach blot? Well, we are fortunate to have with us uh, the author of The Ink Blots, Herman Rorschach uh, and his, or maybe Herman Rorschach and his iconic test uh, and the power of seeing. Damien Searles uh, joins us. Welcome to the conversation. Thanks. And to the musical. <laughs> to the musical. Yeah. I, I feel like we might have something here, Damien. Uh, we'll talk. My people will call your people. So your book begins on a rather chilling and bracing note, but it's really terrific. So this guy is taking a, a, a test for employment, and the employment involves working with children, and he's already passed all kinds of screening devices 
that, that might be used in that situation. Uh, I think if there's the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Test, he's uh, fine with that. There's something called the TAT, where you're basically writing a little story about an image you see. He's fine. His answers are a little kind of anodyne, but they're not you know, alarming in any way. He hasn't really pinned the needle or worried anybody at all. And then he gets to the Rorschach uh, test. And what happens? Well, so what happens is that uh, the examiner shows him 10 cards, one at a time, that have symmetrical ink blots on them and says, what do you see? So it's not about how do you present yourself in an interview. It's not about what do you want to tell me your personality is. It's not about what kind of story are you going to make up. It's just this task of perceiving something visual that's not really like anything you've seen before. And uh, there's no sort of context or information about what you're supposed to be seeing. It's just, okay, what is this? And um, as often happens, uh, someone who is able to sort of keep it together on all sorts of other tests and uh, conversations that he had control over was just thrown for a loop by this task and starts saying these horrible, violent, and also kind of detached from reality things that he sees in the blots. And, and uh, so, yeah. Should I tell the rest of the story? Or? I know, yeah, tell the rest of the story. We like a good story. Yeah, so, uh, you know, it, the examiner um, scores it because the Rorschach test is actually pretty technical and says, you know, this person should not be given this job. And 10 years later, some uh, other therapist gives her a call and says, oh, are you familiar with the patient so-and-so who, you know, I've been seeing. And she's like, oh, yeah, I remember him, and says a little bit about what she's able to say. Um, and the other therapist says, you got all that from a Rorschach test. I thought it was just tea leaves. And, um, yeah, so in other words, she's saying that she thought the Rorschach test was uh, something along the lines of a pseudoscientific fortune cookie, something along, something like that, not something that you really had to pay attention to. But we know, we know from your book, that Rorschach uh, test results are admissible in court. They're reimbursable by insurance. There's lots of ways uh, in which they've stood up to uh, peer-reviewed studies. Uh, we know that, they're, that, that, that they really do have this capacity. I, but I have to sort of say, why? I, I don't. I'm, I'm expecting you to come up with an answer that you may or may not have. But why, if this person in this example was, you know, smart enough or at least aware enough to know that when he was taking the TAT, he shouldn't make up gruesome stories or, or alarming stories about the pictures he was being shown and, and was smooth enough to get through the Minnesota multiphasic without tripping any tripwires? Why would it be that he wouldn't, like, I don't know, I guess if I were this fiendish person and I were trying to get through this process, I'd try to give pretty bland answers about my Rorschach plots. Yeah, that's the million-dollar question, right? Um, and, I mean, that's why I opened the book with that story because, um, you know, I started uh, researching it sort of as skeptical as everyone else, thinking it was some, like, mid-century truth serum gimmick. Um but before I found out that it actually really is used and it really is real. And the reason I opened the book with this story is that no matter how skeptical you are about what the results say, it's just an undeniable fact that they did something to make this guy say stuff that he was perfectly well aware that he didn't want to be talking about. So it did um, get around his defenses one way or another. I think the... Um, 
the big reason is probably that it's visual. You know, uh, vision taps into deeper parts of our mind and our brain than talking. Uh, the large majority of our brain is devoted to visual processing. It's much more primal. It's, you know, I don't know if you've heard the term the lizard brain, but like it uh, really is you can manage what you want to say, but you can't manage what you want to see. When you see it, it's just there and it hits you. Um, and it turns out in a sort of strange context like this, you can't even manage what you want to say about what you see because something about it has really, you know, hit you hard and you find yourself just reacting with the kind of person you are. So we got to just, um, first of all, I'm going to say that Damien Searles' really fascinating book, The Ink Blots, deserves a, um, I just feel like it's on the verge of being about a doo-wop group. But anyway, it de- deserves a, a close read on its own. And his sketch, your sketch uh, of this man, uh, Herman Rorschach, is really fascinating. We don't have time, nor is it probably a good idea to go through all that. But but give us just a, you know, a quickie. Give us a quick sense of who this guy is. One thing we know is he's rather good looking, right? He's a little bit more handsome than your typical pioneer of clinical psychiatry. Yeah, that's been the that's been the fun parlor trick I've had for the last couple of years, which is to say he looks exactly like Brad Pitt, and everyone's like, "Yeah, uh huh." I guess you're the starstruck biographer. And then I pull out my phone and type Herman Vorschach in, and first thing that pops up is "separated at birth," a picture of him next to Brad Pitt, and everyone's like, "Oh my God, he does!" So, uh, so a great subject for radio, Brad Pitt. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so Herman Vorschach was uh, a psychiatrist. Um, He was born in 1884, German-speaking Switzerland, but he was also a visual person. Uh, His his dad was a drawing teacher. He was raised very artistically, and he was a a lifelong sort of amateur visual artist. He kept sketchbooks and visual diaries and sort of made toys for his kids in the wood shop and took photographs of his patients that he organized by diagnosis to sort of understand them better. So he uh, was just a visual person. And the thing about psychoanalysis and most of psychology is that it's sort of by the word people for the word people. It's about sitting on a couch and talking and do you make slips of the tongue and what do you say and don't say. And the thing is, not everyone's a word person. You know, I'm a writer, but I'm married to a painter and art historian. And believe me, I know that visual people and verbal people don't see the world the same way. And so he was just sort of primed by his background to try and take another tack about getting access to people's minds and personalities. And, you know, going from the idea that how you see things uh, says at least as much about who you are as what you say about things. If he hadn't been known for inkblots, he might have been known for monkeys, uh, right? He actually, <laughs> he got along with his, I mean, like a lot of people experiment on monkeys and it doesn't go so great, but he liked his monkey, right? He liked his monkey. Phipps yeah. uh, was his monkey's name. And um, it was actually about his patients, you know? So he worked in basically the equivalent of big state hospitals with sort of hundreds of patients in his department in under his care, many of them seriously psychotic or catatonic, paranoid, schizophrenic, things like that. Uh, not the kind of person that you can put on a couch five times a week and talk to. So he would try other approaches. He'd give them art supplies. Um, and uh, at one point, there was... Um, 
a sort of traveling theater troupe that had a monkey. And he said, hey, can I have your monkey for a few months? And so he took the monkey around with him on rounds uh, with all the patients. There are actually photographs of this with a monkey sort of playing in the patient's hair and the patient sort of smiling and laughing. Um, so he was trying to find ways to connect with people. Yeah, actually, I saw that uh, traveling theater troupe do Miss Julie without the monkey, and it wasn't <laughs> that good. So I was upset. They said the monkey was someplace else. So um, yeah, this is a time. I mean, what's what's fascinating about this, Damien Searles, uh, is that these ink blots. Obviously, this is a time of great intellectual foment everywhere you look. Like it is, it's just a great time to be alive and be creative and be inventive. And and we really are sort of still on the kind of frontiers of Jung and Freud, and we can get to all that. But there's also this revolution going on in the arts. You know, by 1913, you've got the Firebird Suite and you've got the Schoenberg, the Vienna riots over music. That Everywhere you look, there's stuff going on in art and music. Uh, and, and this feels in a way that we would never say about any other form of clinical testing, like it's part of that as much as it's part of anything else. Right. I mean, uh, I am still surprised that Rorschach isn't in any of the art history books mm -hmm. about surrealism or about futurism. He was in Russia in 1914 in Moscow when futurism was exploding, and he met those people, and he saw, he probably saw Mayakovsky, you know, walking around in one of his futurist parades with his bright yellow jacket. And um, he wrote an essay on the psychology of futurism in 1915, which no other major psychologist was doing, really engaging with this kind of modern, sometimes abstract art. Um, so, you know, in a way, uh, one of the things I say about uh, the 10 inkblots that Rorschach made for the Rorschach test, these are probably the 10 most analyzed paintings of the 20th century. But they're not talked about that way because they weren't meant to be hanging in a museum and in the art history surveys. They were meant to be these tools um, for differentiating between different people's different ways of seeing things. Right. I think I might have just said Firebird Suite when I meant uh, Rite of Spring. You can't make a mistake like that on public radio, by the way. <laughs> Hang by your neck until dead. Um, all right. So one thing that I got curious about, Damien, is... You know, I, I absolutely I'm 100 percent with you uh, on everything that you just said, but uh, particularly about the relationship of this stuff to art and the way. And yeah, I think it's a great thing to say. They're the 10 most analyzed paintings of the 20th century. But I'm also wondering what artists think about that. You know, when we're looking at a painting instead of an inkblot, how different is that experience, at least according to an artist? So I asked one. So we know that Rorschach's theory had to do with connecting seeing and feeling. And when you think about it, that's also, I think, a lot of what goes on between an artist, the viewer of his art, and the object of art itself. So, but we thought, well, what would an artist think about that? So we decided to find an artist, and I happen to know a very good one. His name is Kerry Smith, a painter of hard-edged abstract paintings. He exhibits his work at galleries in New York City. Uh, he joins us today. So, Kerry, I'm sensing that you're a little bit skeptical about whether there's any real connection between Rorschach blots uh, and the work of artists? Well, the big difference as I see it, cutting to the chase, is that his Rorschach images were made with random accidental folding of paper. Um, I understand he made numerous of these and that 
tried to find the ones that would be most effective. But the big difference with most, let's say, painters is that painters are actually making humanly made marks that carry with them less accidental energy and more, in comparison, human energy, which uh, is, is the big difference for me. And why, in fact, um, I've never really been interested visually, on a visual level, in the Rorschach imagery. Although, I mean, I think there was some intentionality in, uh, in, in what Rorschach did, but I still I take your point. So uh, I'll make the argument that there might be kind of an interesting set of connections. Rorschach seemed to be looking for some kind of direct path between perception and then the stirring up of our emotions that are not necessarily even coded for words initially. And uh, trying to connect my perception of what's on the wall with a set of emotions inside me and a set of intentions that the artist had. It's not exactly the same as Rorschach, but there's an attempt anyway to use visual impact to stir up feeling. Well, yes, and and also... <laughs> no. <laughs> yes. yes and different. Yeah, okay. So the thing is that the artist, like you listen to a great Bob Dylan song and you can feel the years of him honing his craft, let's say, but what you find is is that you come to understand this person who is in this struggle to find something that the uh, artist is giving to the world, giving to the universe, something they're trying very hard to kind of perfect, let's say. Uh, I've actually never been particularly interested in Rorschach imagery. It just doesn't give me enough information about how human beings deal with being, you know, alive and dealing with their lives. Like, that's another thing that artists, the way that artists are judged, it seems to me, by people who uh, have the power to judge, meaning the people who run museums or the curators, is they're looking for people who bring uh, new inventions, new ideas that um, are articulated exquisitely and perfectly in some way. Um, so, Kerry Smith, the last thing I want to ask you is, obviously, you must, uh, uh, being the kind of artist that you are, have the experience of people walking into a gallery and looking at your art on the wall, looking at a specific painting and saying, I see this, or this makes me feel really sad, or that's a very scary, you know, set of shapes up there, and, and have that be not reflective of your conscious intent. So, yeah. so what do you do with that? I mean, what do you? I mean, I, I'm asking you kind of a Rorschachy question. Sure. You know, what do you do when people have a reaction to your work that just isn't anywhere on the radar screen of what you were intending? I remember watching this um, uh, TV show on public television. It was about the Beatles, and they interviewed various artists, and they interviewed Peter Gabriel, and he said that the Beatles' music enabled more people than almost any other band to project their own fantasies onto it. And I thought, wow, I really like that. Um, When I first started making art, I wanted to control um, what people saw and when they would say things that I didn't, didn't agree with, which is actually now I realize almost everything that gets said, uh, I'm not that interested in it, to be honest, uh, forgive me. Uh, But it's the way it works. People see what they want to see, and, they, and I like the idea. This is, this is what I, I, I like to think of. I like to think of somebody buying a painting of mine or acquiring a painting somehow, having it on their wall in their house down on the shore, and having some wine with friends, 
and looking over the shoulder of one of their friends and looking at my work and having it take them wherever it takes them. And I think that if you are intensely involved and letting all of the burners, your mind and your heart, act um, as deeply as you can, and and all the decisions that you make um, are coming from a place of, of honesty with yourself, then the likelihood of you making something that will affect people is greater. Um, so what I always told my students is that be involved. End of story. Mm-hmm. That's a great place for us to end, too. Uh, Carrie Smith, uh, a painter of hard-edged abstract paintings who exhibits his work at galleries in New York City. Carrie, I know you're a busy man. Thank you for your time today. Most welcome, Colin. Take care. Okay, thanks a lot, man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So that was a conversation that was recorded, in fact, yesterday, and it's sprawled, it's edited, it's sprawled all over the place. We talked about Jackson Pollock and Cy Twombly and Saul LeWitt and, and Barnett Newman and I don't know what else. But uh, we're swinging back now to Damien Searles. He's the author of The Ink Blots, Herman Rorschach, His Iconic Test and the Power of Seeing. So, uh, Damien, I'm feeling as though Herman would be a little bit upset with some of the things that Carrie Smith is saying. I think, I'm guessing from your book that that he, 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 he wouldn't agree with some of the, the artist's critiques of, of him. I don't know. I think it's great that, uh, that you have an artist on the show with me, and I think that I, um, speaking for Rorschach, but also speaking for myself, agree with basically everything that he said, um, except for some of the historical information about what the blots actually are. So um, he was a visual artist and um, did shape the ink blots. Uh, they aren't just random. They aren't just folded. They aren't just uh, black. I mean, there are different colors on some of them. And um, even if it was partly a folding process, I mean, he was able to control it because he was a visual artist and a craftsman and sort of knew what he was aiming for. He said in some of his letters that his early versions were much sort of prettier and more artsy, but he pared them down and sort of stripped them of um, a lot of the aesthetic qualities to have them be more meaningful, but at the same time, not unambiguously meaningful. Um, The other thing is that because he was working with patients such as paranoid patients, it was very important for him to strip out his uh, to any sense that he was consciously crafting these images. You know, you don't see brush strokes. It doesn't look like someone has made a test because if it did, then the paranoid patients would freak out and would focus on that and not be able to sort of see what's there to be seen. So, you know, even minor things like not putting the numbers of the cards on the front because mm-hmm. the paranoid patient would be like, oh, what's number one? Number one what? Or not putting a border around the cards because that in Switzerland might remind them of a black-edged death notice, and then that's all they'd be able to focus on. So this is a way that the the Rorschach blots are not exactly like art because he's not trying to convey his personal artistic vision. He's trying to remove his personal artistic um, efforts from view so that's so that all that's left is something kind of in the visual world for the viewer to react to. Right. He's looking for a kind of sweet spot. I mean, if it's too on the nose or too pointed in a particular direction or 
too full of artistic creative energy, that's going to be a problem because you know you want the viewer to be doing uh, most of the work here. If it's too boring, uh, if it's you know a circle or something, that's not going to be enough. So somehow or other, he has to find some room uh, for for people to look at something and, and come up with what they come up with. So exactly, and I mean the other thing is that there's something really there. You know, if it's a smear that everyone just sees something random, then it's not much of a test. It's just something like clouds that you can free associate to. Rorschach said, no, the the cards aren't actually that good for free associating because they're too specific. So um, one thing that the painter mentioned was this idea of projecting something onto uh, abstract image. And for a long time, that's how they that's how people understood the Rorschach test, that it's just this smear, there's nothing there. And so anything you say it is kind of comes from inside you. Um, but that's not how Rorschach meant it. And that's not how people understand the Rorschach test today. It's really much more of a of an interaction. You're being given this kind of complicated, unusual visual task. And how do you approach it? You know, there's some things that lots of people see. There's one card that looks like a bat. I thought it looked like a bat. Herman Goring thought it looked like a bat. Everyone thinks it looks like a bat because it looks like a bat. So if you say a bat, that doesn't mean you're projecting your vampire fantasies. It means that on this card that is relatively unambiguous, you are seeing the same sorts of things that other people see. You know, and so if there wasn't some of that real objective, concrete handhold, so to speak, um, then then it wouldn't be much of a test. It would just be, you know, the same as anything. All right. You know what? I think we're going to grab a break here, although I think people are out there wondering, okay, so like, how does it work exactly? What do they wind up grading is the wrong word, but what do they wind up grading you on? We'll talk more about that when we come back. Right there on the pillow where I thought you'd laid your head. This seems to happen every time I feel like I'm slowly losing my mind Maybe this is what it was like when Rorschach fell in love All right, we're talking about the history of psychological testing, most especially so far uh, the history of the Rorschach test uh, with the author of The Inkblot, uh, Herman Rorschach. Uh, his iconic test and the power of seeing. Damien Searles is the author of that uh, book. And uh, joining us in just a second will be Merve Emre, assistant professor of English at McGill. Uh, she uh, has a book coming out on the Myers-Briggs test, uh, which will be published um, a year from now, essentially, in spring of, two, of 2018. Before we get to Merve, though, I, you know, I think maybe the thing that we're leaving out, and it's the, the thing, one of the many things that I realized represented kind of a lacuna in my understanding of all this is like, what are they looking for? I mean, okay, so what you- What is this thing? Yeah, you say it looks like a rabbit, I say it looks like, you know, a, a goat, you say it's this, you say it's that. So what's the difference? How, how do they score it? Right, so um, the, the two things that really uh, I didn't know going into this and most people don't know is first of all, that there are these 10 specific images that Herman Rorschach crafted. Um, those from 100 years ago are still the same 10 images that are used today that are used in every single Rorschach test that's ever given. Um, but the other thing is that it's really not so much about what you see as it is about how you see. And that makes the whole thing just automatically sound a lot more plausible. You know, if you can't fit pieces of a complex whole together in a way that makes sense, like you might have some cognitive challenges. 
um, that that seems a lot more reasonable than that an inkblot will suddenly start making you say what drawer you hid the bloody knife in when you committed the murder, you know, which is the vision we have from the movies. So um, when you give an answer or usually several answers for each of the cards, the examiner will write them down and then they'll go off and code them based on what kind of answer they are. So if you've described something that's the whole inkblot, then it's a whole response and it gets coded with a W if you're doing it in English. If it's a detail response, it's a D. If it incorporates the color, it has a C. If it's an animal, it has an A. Um, and uh, things like that are enough and were enough for Herman Rorschach to um, you know, do some ratios between how much, how many of your responses are this, how many are that, or what order do you tend to move in? Do you start with a sort of vague hole and then get more specific or vice versa or get stuck or whatever? And it's those uh, sort of numerical codes that then get plugged into various formulas that produce the results. Now, when Rorschach started, um, it was a it, it was numerical, but it was relatively simple. And then as the decades have gone on, these formulas and codes have gotten much, much more complicated um, as the test is used and sort of embedded in the modern system of modern medicine and psychology to to measure all these different things. But but basically, it's much more about um, your about how you've gone about the challenge of saying what you see in this image. So let's um, add to the conversation, as I promised before, uh, Merve Omre, assistant professor of English at McGill University. Um, she's joining us uh, from Montreal. Uh, and she has a book, What's Your Type? The Secret History of Personality Testing, to be published in the spring of 2018. So, um, Merve Omre, first of all, welcome to our conversation. Hi, Colin. Hi, Damien. Uh, happy International Women's Day. Oh, that's right. Don't smile when yes, you talk to is. us. Don't, yeah, don't smile while you talk to us. Um, and and um, am I saying your name correctly, by the way? Uh, it's Emre. The last name is Emre. But Emre, yes, the yes. first name Merve is correct. Okay. Um, so... You know, there's an irony in Damien's book in the sense that uh, uh, nice Dr. Rorschach is German. He's living in Switzerland uh, for a lot of this time. But the place that really goes nuts for Rorschach plots are, are not those uh, is not those places. Uh, it's the United States of America. And, uh, you know, I, I think one of the things that you've probably discovered is we just like this kind of personality testing stuff in the United States uh, maybe better than other places do, at least maybe at a specific time in our history. We were very drawn to that. Why would that be? Well, so I think there's a historical answer to it, and then there's a more theoretical answer to it. So historically, uh, personality testing really boomed when the, the workforce expanded after World War II. Uh, and one of the things that employers were looking for was a relatively easy way of matching people to jobs. Mm. Um, and so they were really interested in what they called these people sorting instruments uh, that provided cheap and standardized methods for, you know, bringing in a batch of prospective employees and saying, OK, um, you know, if it was the Washington Gaslight Company, OK, you should be uh, a typist. You should be out there reading meters and you you are management material. Um, and so that was one of the reasons I think it was so um, 
you know, personality testing really captured the corporate imagination in the 40s and 50s. Um, today, I think it's still, you know, often used in those corporate settings, but it's also expanded. You know, you see it being used amongst the clergy and the church. You see it being used at colleges to help tell students what their career paths should be. You see it used on online dating sites to help match people to their uh, to their true loves. Um, and so for me, what's really interesting is the way that these tests offer people uh, a language of the self, uh, a vocabulary or an idiom uh, for talking about who they are and what they want uh, and what kinds of people they want to be. And so, yeah, and, uh, Merve, I mean, that is... I think, kind of an American thing. I don't know if it's a Canadian thing, but it's certainly um, uh, a United States of America kind of thing. That, that who, who I am, what makes me so special, is, is really more interesting to an awful lot of Americans. I'm, of course, wildly gener- generalizing here than what have you done or where are you from? or I don't know. There's, there's something about that that mirrors us. Yeah, and no, and, and actually, oh. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a New Yorker. I'm not a Canadian. I just okay. moved here at the at the right time, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, yeah, I, I think there is something distinctly American about the idea of self actualization um, and the idea of happiness as being the goal to which we are all working. Um, and it is historical too, right? The way that that happiness has become enfolded into these corporate settings, which tell you that like, not only should you work really hard, but you should work really hard at doing something that you love. Right. Um, and, you know, I think that's globalized over time, but you can definitely see that, that rhetoric or that discourse starting in the American corporation in the 40s and 50s. So, Damien, uh, one of the things that we, we know, there's a, a chilling passage in your book, I don't know why I'm citing all the chilling passages, but there's a chilling passage in your book where at Nuremberg or pre-Nuremberg, uh, somebody's testing Goring and they're testing Goring with, among other things, Rorschach blots. And he's going, well, this would have been great if we had had these things. These are great, you know. And, and so th- this kind of testing is, you know, it's a double-edged sword. In some ways, it's very attractive to people who need to sort of sort out large groups of people and get them uh, to do the thing that you, things that you want them to do. And as Merve is suggesting, maybe even get them to do the things that they would be the most happy doing. On the other hand, there's something a little fiendish about it, too, right? If you can sort people out by type, uh, you're not really dealing with them as human beings. Yeah, you know, the Rorschach comes in and out of this history of personality testing, I think, in an interesting way, because it isn't quick and easy. It isn't a it doesn't yield a single number. It never did fully take off in, for example, military recruiting or corporate use because it actually is too technical and it sort of takes too long to give and it takes too much training Uh, But at the same time, it kind of became the icon for what personality testing means because, you know, there's no visual associated with Freud. But this inkblot starting in really the late 30s, in other words, um, in the setup for this historical change that Merve is talking about, the Rorschach became the absolute symbol for this is the mysterious mind that new modern science is going to give us access to. People started talking about the Rorschach test as an X-ray and what the invisible skeleton was that it was going to make visible is this idea of the personality. Um, So at one and the same time, the Rorschach test, you know, can't quite be scaled up and used in this sort of cookie cutter setting, uh, but it's the ultimate symbol for, you know, scientists gaining access to the mystery of the mind. Mm -hmm. Um, And, 
you know, Rorschach didn't intend it that way. He originally started making a, a test that he didn't even call a test. He called it a perception experiment. He was just studying like a psychologist in a lab would how people process visual information and just found out in the course of giving it to all the people around him at the asylum he was working at that it was categorizing people and that it was a test and not just an experiment. And that's when he started sort of putting it on a numerical basis. But then when it came to America, it did just explode because of this cultural context that Merve's talking about, where we want some X-ray of the personality. Um, and that's what um, in Nuremberg people thought it was. You know, they didn't, uh, the, the officials didn't order the tests, but the prison psychiatrist at Nuremberg happened to be the guy who had co-written the textbook on the Rorschach published in 1942. And so he thought, goldmine, you know, here's this historically significant group of people. And now we have this great new medical technology to to figure out how their minds work, what the Nazi mind really is. And so he went ahead and started giving people Rorschach tests. So, um, Merve, um, you know, there's so many ways in which it's interesting to compare these two things. Uh, Rorschach was a man. Uh, his disciples, who immediately started feuding, two of them were men. He was popularized in this country by a man. Myers and Briggs are not just women here on International Women's Day. They are mother and daughter. So, first of all, tell us, what did they think they were doing? Well, it, it's actually different for the mother versus the daughter. So, so the mother uh, basically read uh, Carl Jung's psychological types um, relatively late in her life. Uh, she was a lapsed Christian, and she was looking for a new religion. And to her, the language of type—you know, identifying people as extroverts or introverts, thinkers or feelers—offered her a kind of a, a new religion for understanding the world and the people who inhabited it. Um, and she was just very deeply devoted to Jung, um, in, in some ways in a dangerous and psychosexual way. Um, her daughter, on the other hand, was really a, a savvy capitalist who saw the ways in which uh, the, the Jungian type system could be used and could be marketed to corporations. Um, so she was the one who was very, very invested in bringing the language of type into corporations um, in, order to, in order to fit workers to the job. Um, and so one of the one of the interesting things that I've been finding is that even people today tend to talk about something as uh, systematic, um, as rote as Myers-Briggs, as a kind of religion. They just believe in it. Um, and to my mind, that's very much a legacy of the way this product is the marriage of a mother's spiritual belief with a daughter's sort of secular capitalism. Um, yeah, so that's what that's what they both were sort of thinking, and, and they feuded quite a bit about whether or not uh, the instrument should even exist in the first place. The mother was not sold on it at all. Well, Merve, there is uh, there are obviously some great dissimilarities between Rorschach and Myers Briggs, but in a way, there's a little bit of a similarity in the sense that you know, in each case, the subject takes a certain kind of test. Which, and then the examiner takes the results of that test and kind of recodes them or codes them in, in, into some kind of distilled product at the other end. So in, in the case of Myers-Briggs, uh, Merve, it, it really is this four-letter type. Or, or, or is it something else? 
Well, you know, I think it is on, on a most on a very basic level, it is this four letter type that people have. And when you ask people what's your type, they can sort of rehearse it very, very quickly. Um, but like I said before, I really think what it gives people is a kind of secular language of, of self-understanding. Um, and at the same time that I think it does have this you know, dark side as a potential people sorting instrument, um, it also does seem to give people a real grasp on, on what they want. And the people that I've talked to in the course of researching this book have told me these extraordinary stories about how, you know, they were stuck in these dead end jobs or they were married to people that they didn't love or they had terrible relationships with their children. And after after they took the Myers-Briggs, that was that was what gave them the self-understanding and the courage to make major changes in their lives. Um, so I think it's it's actually liberating and empowering to people to know their type. And there's a real sort of uh, a way in which self-discovery or the perception of self-discovery fuels a kind of self-creation. It helps you become a new type of person or the type of person you want to be. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. We've got one more segment to go. Both of these guests will be with us. So stay with us, too. Adam bomb or giant squid. Here's looking at you, kid. Rorschach, I'll always love you. Today's show was produced by a bug with antlers and a dead mouse. A stalk of wheat appeared in the intro, and the part of Bill Curry was played by a soft, furry rug. If you like podcasts, subscribe to The Colin McEnroe Show on iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And now, back to Colin. All right. So um, we're talking about uh, two very famous types of psychological testing. Uh, one of them is the Rorschach, uh, as summed up in the book, The Inkblot, Hermann Rorschach, his iconic test in The Power of Seeing by Damien Searles. Uh, he's joining us. So is uh, Merve uh, Imre, uh, assistant professor of English at McGill University. Her book, What's Your Type? The Secret History of Personality Testing, will be published uh, in spring 2018. So... I, you know, I, I think, well, Damien, this is a question that I don't really know the answer to, which is the worst kind of question to ask. But, um, you know, I, I feel as though, like my church, my church uses Myers-Briggs uh, testing, you know, and I've already had my Myers-Briggs thing done. So when I joined the church, I said INTP, let's just skip that whole thing. Um, but I don't think churches are going to use the Rorschach blot. The Rorschach blot, although maybe it does have kind of industrial applications, maybe it, it in its own way might be good at, the, at being the kind of, you know, Harry Potter sorting hat that Merve is <laughs> describing for Myers-Briggs, but it just has a different reputation, right? It has this reputation of being the thing that kind of uncovers the dark chasm of your soul. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's the reputation and then there's the reality. And, um, you know, those are, those are both interesting questions about this because, you know, I came across this article in my research advocating using the Rorschach for really high-powered executive recruiting because since there's sort of too much time and training and cost involved, it can't be scaled up for sort of every job interview. But if you're interviewing for the new CEO of Goldman Sachs where there's like a really big upside and downside to getting the right or the wrong person, maybe it's worth it. Um, and... Uh, that's not going to happen anytime soon, partly because can you imagine the lawsuits if some wannabe executive is given a Rorschach test and then doesn't get the job? And that has to do with the reputation sort of irrespective of 
the science. Um, it was it was interesting. It was a good time to write this book now because really it's since 2013 that there was this massive study that put the Rorschach on a more solid scientific, objective, empirical footing than it's ever been on. So the people who think they're skeptical of the Rorschach because they believe in science um, may not be actually up to date on the science. It actually does work and is proven and valid and correlated and everything you'd want a scientific test to be, but only as the real thing, not as the magic, you know, trick that makes Amy Schumer see her mother when she looks at the cards or whatever it is. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's that's one of the things that drew me to the subject in the first place, because it turns out that not only is it a cliche, um, but it's this real thing that actually works, even if it works in a different way. And uh, Merve, I'm wondering, how's the Myers-Briggs test doing these days? You know, I mean, uh, Damien is suggesting, if anything, in, at least in some circles, uh, the Rorschach test might even have a little bit more uh, affirmative status than, than it used to. My sense of Myers-Briggs is that it's taken some knocks over the last decade or so. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, it was originally the, the largest validation study that was done for it uh, was done in the 1970s by ETS, the folks who published the SAT, uh, because they were debating whether or not they should start publishing the Myers-Briggs too. Uh, and ultimately, they couldn't validate it. Um, and pretty much every study that's been done since, other than the ones the Myers-Briggs Foundation will put in front of you, uh, every other study that's been done, and, and almost many, many, many uh, psychologists or psychiatrists who've looked at it, uh, you know, say that it, it really isn't valid. I mean, if you give it to the same person on two different days, there's a pretty high likelihood that they will uh, that it'll produce two different type designations. Um, where this is interesting, though, is is when it comes to lawsuits that, uh, as Damien just mentioned. So, if something isn't scientifically valid, if it really is pseudoscience. Uh, then you can't file a lawsuit when it's used to try to type somebody. Um, and so there have been a lot of really interesting lawsuits filed against corporations that have used personality testing to determine things like hiring or promotion or whatever. Uh, but ultimately, because it never rests on its scientific laurels, uh, it doesn't. Uh, it's not something that can be held up and held up as discriminatory. So, you know, the lack of scientificity actually protects the instrument in uh, in unexpected ways. And that's ahead, sort yeah. of the opposite of the Rorschach test, because the Rorschach right. test has passed, you know, the Dobert standard and various other real world legal standards to be admissible as evidence in court of law. So that's a big difference between the Rorschach test and Myers-Briggs. Um, Rorschach test not only claims to be science, but is recognized as being science. I mean, I should say that any responsible person will give it as part of a group of other assessments. So it's right. not like if you see that snake on the moon on card three, then you know, you're know you gonna lose custody of your kid, the end. It's that if someone's evaluating you, um, as with the case that I opened the book with that we talked about earlier, you know, they'll interview you, they might give you an MMPI, they might give you various other tests, an IQ test, a Rorschach test along with it, and then the evaluator will come up with an overall assessment. So I, I think this kind of fear that like, if I see something creative, they're going to think I'm crazy. I mean, that's not how the test is really used. 
And Mervais, I mean, I think the other big difference uh, is that the, the Rorschach is designed to kind of get past your conscious self-presentation, whereas Myers-Briggs, I think, relies pretty heavily on your conscious uh, self-presentation. In other words, uh, if I'm uh, taking the test, I'm answering a lot of questions about myself, and, and I have ample opportunity, I think, to craft those answers or cherry-pick them in some way that might be, I might imagine, would be palatable as opposed to having to go on some hair-trigger response. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think it's hard to generalize about this stuff without talking about context, right? So I think the context in which you take any of these forms of assessment really, really matters to your own sort of reflexivity about yourself and who it is that you want to present. Um, you know, before a Myers-Briggs test is administered, there is a pretty lengthy protocol that the test administrator has to go through in which you encourage the test takers to answer as their true self. Uh, what Isabel Briggs Myers called your shoes off self. Um, and I think, you know, while some people definitely want to craft particular selves for particular purposes, um, other people are really committed to answering it in some kind of honest way. Um, and, you know, I, I, I mean, I find that story that you start the book with so compelling. Um, and I just wonder uh, whether you believe that that's a, a, a unique example. Um, or if you found contexts in which people do have the ability to be a little bit more um, reflexive about how they're answering and, and what self it is that they are projecting. I mean, particularly, I would imagine people who've taken the assessment multiple times. Right. So that is a great question. And it's sort of similar to a question I asked Damien at the outset of the show, but it will all have to wait for Rorschach 2, the sequel to this show, because we are really out of time right now. Uh, thanks so much to Damien Searles. His book is The Inkblots, Herman, Herman Rorschach, his iconic test and the power of seeing. And we can't wait uh, for Merve Imre's book, uh, which is What's your tape type? Why can't I say title solve? So, what's your type? The secret history of personality testing to be published in spring of 2018. Thanks to everyone who helped today. Doc, I gotta know who is this Rorschach guy and. Why does he keep painting so many pictures of my parents fighting? And that time my babysitter forced me to eat an egg salad, and that time I fell off my bike, and... Is that what you see? Yeah, and a butterfly.